Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. I send you greetings on behalf of the other half of my family. Micah has a bit of a sore throat, so he's home. So Roy had to stay home to to be with him. But Josh and I are here, so representing the Kim family, and、um, hopefully next week we can all be here. Last time I spoke, I shared about how God has revealed Himself not only for you know we typically think of the Israelites、um, in the Bible.、Uh, we think about how God has worked you know through Christian history, but we looked last week how God has worked with ancient Canaanites, with the Assyrians, and how He had believers, priests, and prophets living living amongst various people groups across generations. And just as a reminder. Here's a map of the ancient Near East, or Middle East as we call it today, overlaid on a modern geographical map. And it's amazing to me when I look at this area. You know, this is where the majority of the Bible stories happened. As I mentioned last week, the story of of Christianity is not a Western story. The origin of the Bible is all in the Middle East and Northern Africa. This is where the the stories of Abraham coming out of Mesopotamia, traveling to Israel, what became Israel. This is where the stories of the Exodus of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, heading to the Promised Land, happens. This is where the Israelites are taken into exile to Assyria and to Babylon, and this is where we're going to focus today as we talk about the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians that came after. And as we explore history. It is my prayer that we will see how much God cares for people, people from all nations, all tribes, all backgrounds, and how He calls us, wherever we may be around the world, to be a blessing and a light to the nations around us. Last week we talked about the kingdom of Assyria, whose capital city was Nineveh, and as promised, I did buy the book. Out of Babylon that I talked about、uh, the, the, the personal story of Dr. Joseph Kidder and how he、um, literally came out of Babylon and、um, became a, a Seventh Day Adventist Christian. And I've got his story. And so, if you want to borrow that、um, for the from the church library, you're welcome to. Now, over time, we talked about how in Assyria there was a series of uprisings and civil war, and finally, in 612 BC, Nabopolassar,、uh, the king of Babylon, successfully overthrows the Assyrian Empire、uh, by conquering Nineveh, and then his son Nebuchadnezzar conquered the Egyptian and Assyrian armies at the famous Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. After which, he then con-、uh, you know marched over to Jerusalem and set it on fire. And took prisoners. Nebuchadnezzar、um, became king when his father Nebuchadnezzar died later that year, and Nebuchadnezzar became the king of the vast empire of Babylon. Now, the interesting thing about this man, Nebuchadnezzar, you might have heard of him from history, but for centuries we only knew him because of the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in the Bible 90 times in Second Kings, Second Chronicles, Jeremiah, but especially in the Book of Daniel. For example, we meet him in Daniel chapter one, verses one and two. It reads, "In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God." And these he carried off to the temple of his god in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his god. 
Now, what's interesting is that even though Nebuchadnezzar was mentioned quite a bit in the in the Bible, as was the case for many many years, there wasn't other historical evidence for him until excavations were made in the 18th century and onwards in the ancient city of Babylon. And when archaeologists discovered the ancient ruins of Babylon and they started digging and they found the Ishtar gates, the beautiful Ishtar blue gates, um, if you've seen pictures of that, and they found clay tablets, for example, this one dating to 597 BC, which, um, which talks specifically about Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Judah and how he took prisoners. Four of those prisoners were four teenage boys named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these young men, because of their royal background, were chosen to be not just prisoners to Babylon, but to be taken into the Babylonian court and to be educated at their university so that they could be trained up to be officers in the Babylonian uh, kingdom. And the story goes that while they were willing to learn in this new culture and this new nation, they did, never, they did not compromise their first allegiance to God. And because of their faithfulness and their accomplishments, eventually they were given high positions within the Babylonian administration. We come to, um, you know, so, so you've got Daniel, you've got Daniel's friends, and you've got other Jews that have now been assimilated into the Babylonian empire. And the question is, what was God's purpose for this nation, for the nation of Babylon? What was he trying to tell them? And we find out in Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Now, I don't know about you, but I have weird dreams all the time. Um... But it turns out that Nebuchadnezzar didn't just have a dream that made him uncomfortable. He had a dream that made him think there's something really important about this dream, but I, I, I really need to know what it, what it means. And of course, you know, uh, for him and his culture, dreams were very important. And he wanted an interpretation that he knew was genuine. And so being a clever man, Nebuchadnezzar says to all the uh, the wise men, it says, the astrologers, the magicians, the sorcerers, the astrologers, in other words, the scientists and, and, the, and the religious uh, leaders of his day, he gathers them all together and he says, I've had a dream that's troubled me and I want you to interpret it for me. And you can kind of imagine them saying, oh, yes, king, tell us your dream, right? This is a chance to to prove ourselves, the chance to maybe get into his favor. Tell us the dream king and we'll interpret it for you. And Nebuchadnezzar, being a clever man, says, oh, no, no, you tell me what I dreamed. And the interpretation. Then I can trust your interpretation. You can imagine the response. They, they basically say to the king, what you're asking is impossible. Right? No one can know what you dreamt except for the gods, they say. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar is furious because he's like, well, you claim to be priests of God, right, of the various gods. And they had uh, different gods, um, especially assigned to planets because the Babylonians were really big into astrology. And so, you know, for example, their god Marduk was the god of Jupiter. And so he's saying, hey, you should be able to know what I dreamt and its meaning. And when they can't give him that answer, 
he feels like they've been lying to him all this time, that they're frauds. And he orders not only for them to be killed, but all the wise men, right? So all the university students, all the professors, all the scholars of the land to be executed. He was a clever man, but he didn't have a very good temper. So then when the captain of the guard knocks on Daniel's door and says, I've come to execute you. And he had a good relationship with Daniel. So Daniel's like, why? So the captain explained what happened. And Daniel says to the captain, let me pray to my God. And he asks Nebuchadnezzar to give him some time. And he must have had, uh, you know, he, he had already... Um, met with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar already knew that Daniel was a, a man of wisdom. And so Nebuchadnezzar actually lets him have some time. So so after a prayer meeting between Daniel, Michelle, um, and his other friends, they get together, they pray. And that night, God gives Daniel the same dream and the interpretation. So the next day, Daniel goes to the king. And the king says, very skeptically, so are you going to, Are you? can you tell me what I dreamt? And Daniel says this, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. And I imagine at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is just about to like throw a chair at him, right? But Daniel continues, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed your mind as you were lying in bed are these. So at this point, Daniel goes on to tell the king his dream. And the king, he remembered his dream. And when Daniel is telling him the dream, you can imagine the king saying, yes, that's that's it. That's what I dreamt. He dreamt of this huge statue of, of a man, image of a man with a head of gold and arms of silver and, and um, belly and thighs of bronze legs of iron and divided feet of iron and clay. And then a rock came out of nowhere and hit the image at the feet and the whole thing comes crumbling down. So then Daniel tells him the dream and then he goes on to interpret the dream for him as well. He tells the king how each of the metal represents one kingdom. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, king, you are the head of gold. Babylon is the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, being a very proud man, I think, stopped listening after that. Because um, in Daniel 3, he builds a whole image of gold. But Daniel goes on to say, after you will rise another kingdom. A kingdom that is inferior to yours. Okay, Just as silver is not as precious as gold. And he says this kingdom will be, well, he didn't say this, but he, he says that the, uh, the kingdom will be represented by silver. Uh, which in history we know to be Medo-Persia. And then he says, after that, another kingdom will rise um, that is represented by the bronze, which uh, we know through history was the Greek empire. And then he says, after that, you have another kingdom that is as strong as iron that's going to crush all the other neighboring nations to bits. And that was the Roman empire. Then he says, after that, it will divide. And Rome did divide into Western and Eastern um, Roman empire. The Western Empire eventually became um, disintegrated as Germanic invasions happened and it divided into Western European kingdoms uh, that we know today as France, England, etc. And then Eastern Roman Empire became the Byzantine Empire after the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So up until 1453, it was uh, the Byzantine Empire practiced 
um, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. But then after the fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Ottomans, then that area um, that we know today um, became um, Turkish. Ultimately, all the kingdoms come to an end. And Daniel says, at the end of this time, right, after all these kingdoms have happened, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a reveal of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Just take a moment to imagine the king of the Babylonian empire falling prostrate. Michael was reading over my shoulder as I was typing this, and he was reading it, and he's like, what's prostrate? And I was like, it means to fall flat down on your face. So here is the emperor of that, you know, area, the most powerful man in that kingdom, who is falling face down before Daniel and praising the God of heaven. Because God cared about Nebuchadnezzar and revealed to him not just a vision of what's to come, but really an invitation to be part of that eternal kingdom that will endure forever. You see, the Babylonians, like I said, were obsessed with astrology. They believed you could tell the future by studying the stars and the planets. And Nebuchadnezzar had gathered this, you know, massive tribe of astrologers and and, uh, magicians and sorcerers and diviners, but they could not tell him the future. But here was a captive from Jerusalem who prayed to the God of heaven, who reveals to Daniel, that the God of heaven has a plan for Nebuchadnezzar that has a future for him that is beyond just the boundaries of his empire. It took a while longer and a series of other events before Nebuchadnezzar finally really worshipped the God of heaven. You can read about it in Daniel's chapters 2 to 4. But what happens in, in the Chronicles of History is that after Nebuchadnezzar dies, uh, you've got other you know descendants of his that rule And they were not as interested in the God of heaven. We know from reading the book of Daniel that Daniel continued to serve in the Babylonian empire and that he continued to receive visions from God about the future, very specific visions about the Medo-Persian king, very specific visions about Alexander the Great and the king of of Greece that's going to come after. And you would think that the kings of Babylon would always have Daniel by their side asking him, hey, what's, what's coming next? But they don't seem interested at all. In fact, we get to Daniel chapter 5, and there is a prince named Belshazzar. Not only is he not interested in the God of heaven or in Daniel, but he does the opposite. Remember those temple articles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of Jerusalem when he conquered Judah? Well, Belshazzar decides that while Cyrus the Great 
a Medo-Persian king, is camped outside the Babylonian walls about to attack, Belshazzar says to himself, these walls, you know, if you've ever seen the, the, the excavations of the Babylonian walls, they say they were so thick that two chariots could ride side by side on top of the walls. That's how thick they were. So here's Belshazzar saying, there's no way they can get in. We have enough food and water because the Euphrates River went through the city. We're good. They can tire themselves out. We're going to have a party. And not only are we going to have a party, but I'm going to get those temple articles from the Jerusalem temple. And we're going to use those to fill up with the wine and drink. And it's at this point when he truly has no respect for the God of heaven that a hand appears out of nowhere. And this hand writes on the wall the words Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And then disappears. And you can imagine Belshazzar's face turning ashen gray as he sees this vision and no one can interpret for him what this means. And his grandmother, okay, who might have been Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, who knows, but someone who obviously knew Daniel says, hey, king, there's a man in your kingdom that you've neglected, but his name is Daniel and he can interpret this for you. So they, so he says, all right, go find this man. Find out where he is. And they bring Daniel over, who by this point is like in his 70s, brings him over and says, can you interpret this? Tell me what it means and I'll give you half my kingdom. You know, I'll, give, I'll make you a high ruler. Tell me what this means. And Daniel says, you can keep all the gold and silver for yourself. I don't want it. But I will tell you what this writing means. He says, Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and it's given to the Medes and Persians. And in fact, that very night, October 29, 539 BC, Cyrus the Great diverted the Euphrates River that ran through the city to a canal, dug a canal, diverted the water so that the water level dropped, and they marched through the riverbed into the city of Babylon that night and conquered Babylon. And so the Medo-Persian or the Archimedes Empire began. Now, the reason why we know the exact date of this conquest, right, very specific, October 29, 539 BC, is because this, as well as other details of his public policies, were found in the Cyrus Cylinder discovered in the ruins of Babylon in 1879. In this clay tablet, Cyrus expresses his tolerance for multiculturalism and different religions and mentions he's allowing people groups to resettle into their homelands and to rebuild their temples. And because of his incredible um, freedom of religion that he, he provided, um, some scholars describe this cylinder as the oldest known declaration of human rights. And a replica of the cylinder was presented to the United Nations by the government of Iran in 1971. The question is, what made Cyrus such a benevolent leader? According to Josephus, a first century Roman Jewish scholar and historian, Cyrus read the scroll of Isaiah, a book in the Old Testament, possibly because of Daniel who was still alive, right, when um, Cyrus became, took over Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 9, you read this beautiful prayer by, 
prayer by Daniel, where he had been studying the, the scroll of Jeremiah. And God had promised that even though they were taken exile into Babylon, right, into Assyria, that after 70 years, God would bring them back. So that 70 years time is almost up. Remember, Daniel was a young teenager when he was taken. Now he's in his, now he's like 80 years old. And so he, he knows 70 years is almost up, but he's worried. And so he prays this beautiful prayer of repentance and intercession in Daniel chapter 9. And so you can imagine that this Daniel who cared so much about his people might have gone knocking into the throne room of Cyrus the Great saying, Hey Cyrus, King Cyrus, I have something to show you. And perhaps he read to him Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, right? Where he says, after seven years, I'm going to bring you back to this place because I have a, a hope and a future for you. Perhaps he read that, but I think the ultimate kind of punchline would have been when he opened the scroll of Isaiah. Because more than 120 years before Cyrus was born, the prophet Isaiah had mentioned Cyrus by name. In fact, there are 23 references to Cyrus as God's anointed, God's shepherd, God's chosen one. And Josephus, the first century uh, historian, Jewish historian, wrote that Cyrus read these references and realized that God was calling him to return the Israelites to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild their city and their temple. And when you look at history, that's exactly what he did. And they have found now clay tablets where he describes returning people, including the Jewish um, exiles, back to Jerusalem. According to the book of Ezra, Cyrus even funded much of the rebuilding of the city and the temple. He appears in Daniel chapters 5 and 6 under his median name, Darius the Mede, because uh, Cyrus was actually the son of a Persian father and a Median princess. So he was a, a Persian and a Median at the same time. Um, and I actually have two names. I don't know if you know this. But my Korean name is Junha. But did you know I actually have an American name? An English name, I guess. Um, when I moved to the U.S. when I was eight, um, people had a hard time saying Junha. It's phonetic, but people still struggled. <laughs> And so then um, my pastor at the time was a big fan of like, I don't know if it's the 80s show, I don't even know how old it is, but of this show, I Dream About Jeannie. <laughs> and he said, well, you know what, this, this, you know, um, this is a great name, you know, it's a good name It's for the culture. He said, you can be Jeannie. I didn't know anything, you know. But I was just like, okay. So then... The, I became known as Jeannie. That was my uh, English name. As I got older, I really liked the name Jinha because my parents gave me that name uh, because in, in ancient Korean, it means true water. And they wanted me to be like Jesus, the true water in John chapter 4. And I was like, I'd rather have that name than I dream about genie reference. And so as I grew older, I used to be, so there are some people still today who only know me as genie who knew me back then. Um, but when I got to uni, I was like, no, I know who I am. I know what I want to be. And, um, and so I introduced myself to people only as Jinha from then on. But there, once in a while, I would meet people who'd be like, oh, you're 
cute. You know, it's Jeannie. And I'd be like, well, actually, I've changed my name or I've not changed my name, but my real name is Jinha. Um, but for the sake of identity, because I, I am an American, right? I, I did go through that immigration and, and that changed my life. So when I became a U.S. citizen in 2002, I think it was, I officially put it as my middle name. So my official name is Jinha Jeannie Kim. And it's interesting because when you look at the book of Daniel, Daniel is a Hebrew name. And it actually means God is my judge. And when he got to the Babylonian Empire, they all gave Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, they gave them, all those are Hebrew names, they gave them all Babylonian names. But interesting because his Babylonian name didn't stick, meaning his other friends are referred to by their Babylonian names later on in the chapters, but Daniel is always known as Daniel. He was a guy who decided, this is who I represent, this is what I am, and um, and that's how people saw him. Anyways, back to the Darius. So Darius the Mede, that was his Median name, Darius, but his Persian name was Cyrus. And so possibly because of the prophecy in Isaiah and Jeremiah that said that the Medians would destroy the Babylon, uh, would destroy the Babylonians. Um, possibly that's why Daniel, as a prophet, calls him by both names to show that prophecy was fulfilled. At any rate, within the first year of Darius or Cyrus's reign, he was establishing new administrators. And when he met Daniel, he could tell that this was a man of incredible wisdom and accomplishment and um, ability. And so even though he was now 80 years old, Daniel was appointed as the chief. So he had 120 governors over his vast empire. And, and he had three administrators over those 120 governors. But out of the three, the chief was Daniel. Now look at what happens. Daniel chapter 6, verses 3 onwards. Now Daniel was so distinguished um, amongst the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him up over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Incredible. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So they plotted to trick the king into signing a decree that for 30 days, no one should pray to any god or any human except for the king. And of course, the king liked the sound of that. So he stamped it into law, not thinking about the implications, because that's what happens with, when your vanity is stoked. And so these um, jealous rulers laid the trap. And they, and they laid this trap because they knew that Daniel would be faithful. Daniel 6, verse 10, When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men, who you can imagine were like spying on him to, to see this, went as a group found Daniel praying and asking God for help. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed because he liked Daniel. And he realized now too late that he was trapped. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. 
Then the men went as a group, you see this group mentality, to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So they really have now trapped not just Daniel, but the king as well. So the king gave order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. And then they had to close the mouth of the den with the rock and seal it so that no one could rescue him. And all night long, the king couldn't eat or sleep because he was so worried about Daniel. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? It's a long sentence. If I were the king, I would just be like, Daniel, still alive? <laughs> right? And then Daniel answers. Can you imagine the moment he hears that voice? A little bit croaky from a night in the, you know, den of the lions. Not very warm, not very comfortable for an 80-year-old man. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And the overjoyed king gets, you know, people to come and, and bring Daniel out of the lion's den. And then what he does is, King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus. What an incredible moment in history. When the ruler of the biggest empire known at that time in the world proclaims to every corner of his empire praise of the God of heaven. Time goes by, kings come and go, Daniel dies. And eventually, Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire. And then, in time, Rome grew stronger, and they conquered uh, the Greek or the um, Macedonian Empire, it's sometimes called as well. And then the Roman Empire spread you know, from that Middle East west to Western European and Northern um, Africa and around the Mediterranean Sea. And the question is, was that the end of God's revelation? to the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians? Do we now move on, leave that land, and move on to Western Europe and follow the trajectory of, of Christian history there? About 500 years after the death of Daniel, we read this in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, during the king, time of King Herod, Magi, wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Who are these wise men from the east who are studying the stars? Let's go back to the map. 
Okay, there's Israel. And so to the east of Israel, you've got the lands of Medo-Persia, right? Babylon and Medo-Persia, which later got conquered. But could it be that these wise men who we know existed from the time of Daniel knew what they were looking for? Even though the Bible doesn't say. Could it be that when, remember when Daniel interpreted um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it said that the king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished many gifts on him, and he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, also at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are the Babylonian names of Hananiah, Mishael, and Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah. Uh, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So Babel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the chief wise man. And under Cyrus the Great, it says that Daniel was also placed as chief of the wise men in the Persian Empire. Daniel had influence, and so could it be that he introduced to his wise men the scrolls of Numbers, the scrolls of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and also, don't forget Queen Esther, who during the Persian Empire, right, she comes after Daniel, um, Esther and Mordecai, who are Jews living in the Persian Empire, they chose, um, they were part of the Jews who chose not to go back to Israel because they had already settled um, in, the, in the empire. And the remaining Jews uh, were in trouble there until God brings Queen Esther to a place of influence as well. And could it be that they had a part also in sharing this prophecy in Numbers 24, verse 17? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Could it be that there were a group of wise men who for generations studied the stars, no longer in vain, but in hope of a new king from Israel? a king whose kingdom will never end. That as they studied the book of Daniel, that, that, you know, if you think about it, it makes sense that Daniel would write down his visions and leave them for the Babylonians to read, leave them for the Persians to read. And that in Daniel chapter 9, where God gave Daniel a, a vision of the timeline to come with the very specific year of when the Messiah would come. Did you know that? If you ever studied Daniel chapter 8 and 9, it gave an exact timeline of when Jesus would come. Could it be that the wise man from the East studied these visions, studied the book of Numbers and the book of Isaiah and the book of, of Jeremiah, and so when the star finally appeared in the sky, right, these Babylonian Persians who loved astrology, that they finally said, this is it, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, whose kingdom will never end, has been born. And that's why they make the trouble of traveling from the Far East, right? Coming to, to find this king of Israel, to worship him. And the question that we have today is, are we looking for signs too? Signs of Jesus' presence with us, so that we too can worship him. Signs of his second coming, when indeed his kingdom that will never end will be made realized in the, in the flesh. Signs of what we are called to do as we live in this world, but live for the world to come. 
What does it look like to be part of God's kingdom today and yet living here in Melbourne? I think, first of all, it's about trusting in God and prioritizing his kingdom above all else, just like Daniel did. Matthew 6, verses 31 to 34, when Jesus is explaining the constitution of his kingdom, he says, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of itself. God's saying, I know you need these things. I know you have to work. But the primary mission of your life should not be the pursuit of financial security, the pursuit of family, or the pursuit of pleasure. But it should be first and foremost about seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. It means prioritizing God. Even it means loss and sacrifice of earthly positions and profit and even life itself. Being a citizen of God's kingdom means our allegiance is first and foremost to him. And we give the best of our time, the best of our strength, the best of our youth and our resources and our skills to be used for God. Rather than as, well, we'll give all our strength to work and all our energy to our loved ones. And then if we have any energy and time and space left over for God, then, you know, that's often how we work. And God's saying, no, give me your first, give me your best, give me your your priority right so that you've got a man like daniel who was so excellent in what he did that he was set as first by multiple kings and yet he never compromised on his greatest allegiance to god how can we prioritize god better this week how can we make room and space for god and his kingdom perhaps it might be setting time aside to pray without interruption and distraction perhaps it's joining a bible study Perhaps it's doing an act of kindness. The second way that we participate in God's kingdom is to love our fellow believers. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, being a part of God's kingdom means we don't judge each other. We don't look at the differences. But instead we humbly collaborate to build up God's kingdom. It means gathering together, right? This sermon... You can watch it online. But the conversations, the interactions that we have with one another in community, that's what church is. Church is wherever and whenever we love, serve, equip, and encourage one another in Christ. So that those who don't believe in God yet, look at us. They don't see the exact same infighting and all the awful things that happen outside. If they see the same things happening inside, why would they want to join? Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's our love, our forgiveness, our humility towards fellow believers that's going to 
show those outside the church that the Christian community is inspired by God. This week, how can we live out Christian community? How can we get to know someone in church better? Someone that we don't know as well, someone that we haven't connected with yet. How can we learn their story? Being part of God's kingdom is about living good lives. What does, what does it mean to have a good life? Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, right? Meaning we're not citizens of this kingdom only. We are citizens of God's kingdom to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Right? Just like Daniel. They couldn't find any fault with him. And eventually he was vindicated. When we resist the downward spiral of selfishness and greed and instead choose to live lives for others, lives of integrity, lives of consistency, then people can glorify God. Micah 6.8 further describes what it is to have a good life. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And if you saw that Adra video earlier about the offering today, you might have seen the Adra sweatshirts they were wearing, t-shirts that says this, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Do we care about what God cares about? Justice and mercy and humility? Or are we quick to gossip and blame and criticize and talk about things that only interest us? Did you know that there are 828 million people going hungry tonight? Did you know that around the world, someone dies of hunger every four seconds? Did you know that due to the conflict in Ukraine, the droughts in Africa, and COVID-19, there are 50 million people facing famine right now? Recently, a group of Christians from various denominations and backgrounds went to Canberra to ask the government, the Australian government, to do something about this. And the Australian government, first of all, when, when this group of delegations came, uh, came, something that they said to them was, wow, usually we get people to come in who want us to do something for them. Rarely do we get a group of people come in and asking us to do something for others. And they did pledge $15 million to aid the countries in Africa, but that's not nearly enough. The various agency groups like World Vision, ADRA, um, Fight Famine, MICA Australia, these organizations are asking the government, the Australian government, to show global leadership by providing $150 million in food packages to nations around the world. And you can do, you can do something to help. If you go to fightfamine.com.au or you go to World Vision, they have a pre-written email that for your local MP. So you just have to put your name and your address, and that's it. It takes five seconds, and that email will be sent to your local MP, asking them to support donation for and, and international aid to the countries around the world where there are people who literally are starving to death. You could also do something more personal. You can volunteer at the soup kitchens. You can help 
there's one here on Sundays. There's uh, the Friday night big markets. There's so many places that need help, and there's so many ways that we can show that we love justice, that we love mercy, and that we have a desire to walk with God through this life. Finally, being part of God's kingdom is about sharing the good news of his kingdom so that others can join, right? First Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, But in your hearts reveal Christ, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good character in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This week we've seen and heard right here in Australia what a clash of values can do. Whichever side of the Essendon Thorburn saga that you're on, the question is, are you speaking with gentleness and respect? Do you have a clear conscience? Do you have an answer to give to people who ask you why you believe? This is the focus. This is what we should be talking about rather than who's right, who's wrong, right? Rather than the fear or the, you know, there's so many things. It's been in the news for days and days, right? But the wrong questions are being asked. A Christian's response to culture has always been a complex one. And the next time I preach, we're going to explore the concept of Christ and culture. But today I want to leave you with an invitation to choose God's kingdom. We began our series in Mesopotamia, looking at God's interaction with nations from Genesis. I want to leave you with the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, written by a follower of, named Jesus, a follower of Jesus named John, who was exiled to the Greek island of Patmos for sharing his faith. Isolated from all civilization and community, right? He was living all alone on a desert island. So imagine his joy when God gives him a vision, a vision of a multitude of people who are God's followers. Revelation 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and the language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love that vision of Revelation that shows that God's people are from every nation, every tribe. That even though we're separated by time and distance, that the day is coming when he's going to unite us all into one language, one church, one people. And I want to be there to chat with Abraham and Daniel and possibly ancient kings and queens. To hear from God himself how he worked behind the scenes in history. How he never gave up on me. How he never gave up on you. I want you to be there. And I pray that today you'll make that decision, if you haven't already, to be a part of God's kingdom. To make that decision that you want to follow Jesus. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had over the past month or so. Looking at how you have worked in history. How you had a plan. How you care for each and every one of us. That it's not just the chosen ones. It's not just... Um, you know, the ones we know about, that you actually have a story with every culture, every nation that we don't even know about. But Father God, help us to accept the call you make to us, 
that when we look at our own lives and our own history, that we would see your finger guiding us, that we would sense your invitation of you knocking on the doors of our hearts. And I pray that as we sense your kingdom coming nearer, that we make that decision to say yes to you, to walk with you, to be a part of expanding your kingdom, to be a part of um, living out your kingdom principles in a way that glorifies you. And Father, there are many times when we have failed that as a church, as individuals, as a community. We ask for forgiveness and we ask that as we try to do better, that your Holy Spirit would help us, that the Holy Spirit would unite us, that together as a church community we can be a different light in Melbourne so that those around us who think that Christianity is for fools or that Christianity is... um, about hatred or that Christianity is outdated, that we'll be able to share such a bright light of your glory that they would ask, come to ask us, what is the reason for the hope that you have? What is the reason for the honesty and the integrity and then the courage and the love and the kindness that we have? So, Father, it is my prayer that we would be such a community, that we would be such a light in the body of Christ. We need your wisdom and your guidance, Lord, and we submit ourselves to you. And if there's anyone in this church right now or those listening online or watching and they're on that valley of decision, I just pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts to give them the courage to say yes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.